0: Welcome to the Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett, and after two years, I'm having a short break. Two years and a hundred plus episodes from recording this show, but I'm just promise it's just going to be a couple of weeks. And I've decided to re-release just a few of my favourites. And today is Kate Courtney. Kate was episode twenty-four of the show, and I hadn't met Kate before this recording, but as you will see from this episode, she is absolutely delightful and just an incredibly inspirational champion. Kate is also on the platform AnyQuestion and you can use code anyquestion.com forward slash R forward slash Kate with a K. Anyquestion.com forward slash R forward slash Kate and download the app and ask Kate any questions. A little bit of housekeeping before we go on. Thank you for listening and thank you for all the support. You'd be doing me a massive favour if you could just share the show. The more listeners I receive, the more likely I can keep this podcast going. And finally... Remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. All right, today's guest is one of the world's greatest mountain bikers. The last few years have just been simply incredible. In 2017, at the age of 21, she won the Under-23 World Cup Series. And then rather than staying in the Under-23s, she stepped up to the elite level. And boy, did she step up. She stepped up by winning the World Championships in Switzerland at the age of 22. And then a year later, just to prove that it wasn't a fluke, she went and won the World Cup Series overall at the age of 23. Just simply incredible. She's intent on getting what she wants and doing everything she can to make it happen. And she's surrounded herself with just an incredible team to help her on this journey. So I really appreciate her coming on the show. So, So thank you and welcome to Be With Champions, Kate Courtney. How are you, Kate?
1: Hi, thanks for having me. I'm doing really well. How about yourself?
0: Yeah, not too bad. I think we're all sort of making our way through this um, lockdown type world that we're in right now. And and one of the reasons I really wanted you on this show was firstly, you're an incredible writer. I know I've just said you're an incredible mountain biker, but I was reading the Wall Street Journal about six, seven weeks ago when all of this lockdown was kind of happening and when they sort of said, look, we don't know what we're doing with the Olympics. And you wrote this incredible piece and it was just... It really was incredible to just hear an honest tribute to what the Olympics meant to you and how devastated you were but how you also understood the reality of what's happening in the world. Tell me a little bit about what sort of provoked you to to write that because it was just an incredible piece. And for anybody listening, I'll add that link in the show notes so you can go have a read yourself. It's just a really great piece of writing.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was it was an exciting moment for me to be able to kind of turn to something else. Um, I think you know I've I've wanted to do more writing for the past couple of years and just you know couldn't find the time. And as soon as this happened, writing really became a way for me to process it. Um, And so I started you know journaling and and writing and writing as we were waiting to hear what would happen for the Olympics. And you know a couple days before the news came out, I um, got contacted for an interview with the wall street journal. And I said, Hey, Hey, would you let me tell this in my own voice? Would you let me write something? Um, and so, you know, got to work on, on tailoring that piece and it just so happened to come out actually the day the Olympics were postponed. So, um, good, good timing in terms of being able to share that experience. And I really, um, I think, I think there's something unique about sharing your story with your own voice. And for me, it was an opportunity to do so and to show um, what it's like to be an athlete in this experience. And, and that's, of course, just one small experience that's happening in quarantine. There's far more pressing issues than um, these dreams being on hold. But I think that we all have a story and have a voice and a way to contribute to what it means as a global community to go through this really challenging time.
0: Mm. I I think it was one of the things both my wife Laura and many of the listeners would know this both my wife Laura and I were both Olympians and and both sort of full-on professional athletes and loved it and we both sort of sat back and and one of the things when we saw this quarantining happen and we saw the Olympics being cancelled was just our our heart really sank and and it's not to say yes you know I'm not making light of people dying or being sick I'm certainly not saying that but when you're an athlete and you've put your blinders on and you are all in And you're at that stage where you've done tremendous years of building up to get to this point. It was The way you wrote your article was really honest and and very truthful about how much it hurt and that you were struggling in your mind to find motivation and then it would come and go. And I just thought it was a really brilliant piece because I think a lot of people that aren't elite athletes might not understand just how brutal it is to have a dream just taken away. But Okay. So we've sort of talked about that, but now it looks like things are starting to move in the direction where you can start to dream again. Are you starting to feel a little bit more relaxed and motivated and and feel a bit more, have a bit more direction in what you're doing?
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, it comes and goes in waves. I definitely was in that blinders on prep for the Olympics moment that you um, obviously know so well. and, And that's a unique place to be. I, thought about it the first week as, you know, you're, you're progressively tightening your grip for these four years. You're doing less, focusing more, you know, getting closer to that 9,500% effort as you approach the Olympics. And this kind of forced me to loosen that grip a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. I need to go full grip strength in 2021. Um, so it's, it's been an interesting kind of problem for my team or, or just a challenge to learn how to loosen up a bit and, and be able to take this rest period, which is how I see it mentally. It's a period where we're not traveling the world racing and I can focus and be home and have consistent training. Um, so, so taking the positive sides of that, um, while still, you know, keeping my grip tight enough that I am on that path towards the Olympics and that, Um, I will emerge from this year, not just equally prepared for the Olympics, but a much better athlete. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think in the recent weeks, we've really found new ways to do that. Um, I'm, you know, really seeing great training numbers and I've been home consistently, which I think is an asset that people don't, um, really think about a lot. Uh, just, you know, traveling the world really impacts your training volume. Um, (laughs) yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, you're talking about your training and, and mountain biking, even though it kind of is said to have started in the world that you live in, Marine County there in in um, just outside of San Francisco, most of the big racing and most of the big competition is in Europe. And so, you know, when you talk about travelling, It is harder for Australians and Americans to some degree to take on the Europeans that are often racing an hour or two from their home um, for four or five of the major World Cups in the year. And that's happening with triathlon as well, the sport that I've been in, that Australians and Americans are having to go base themselves in Europe for big periods of time just to be competitive. So this year you're able to sort of sit back, although they have said um, there's a World Cup series starting up and I had a brief look at it before coming on and chatting to you and it looks like you've basically got a 36-day window in, in September, early October there to crush a World Cup Series and a, and, a, and a World Championship title in all of that. Is that better for you that you can kind of look at that and go, look, I'm going to go to Europe for one block, I'm going to hit it hard and, and see how I come out of it?
1: Yeah, I think it's been a, a definitely a different mental approach to the season. Um, for the moment, while we're in quarantine and while the future is really uncertain at the moment, I Um, you know, really hope that we're able to hold those events safely by September. But until then, we've really tried to find a way to focus on um, those really immediate goals. So, you know, within my team, we have ways that I'm progressing and, you know, getting intensity at home, making progress in the power ranges I need to make progress in or learning, um, you know, different things that I think will help me be prepared next year. Um, so that's kind of this next phase. And then I think Mm -hmm. leading into September, the goal is just going to be, um, ramping up quickly and and trusting that I can rise to the occasion and be ready to race when we have the opportunity. Um, and I think for me, you know, having a good team around me and of course being very numbers based is something that's going to allow me to have confidence, um, and be able to just kind of come into that season, put all my chips on the table and, and hope to have a great six weeks of racing.
0: Mm, yeah, I like that. You kind of—it's almost like I don't want to get—I don't want to get too ramped up this year. <laughs> Especially, I don't need that emotional high and then that emotional low again. If things don't happen, I don't need the roller coaster anymore. So it's, let's just try and stay as even keel as we can. Let's try and keep the emotions in check because it is an emotional roller coaster when you're preparing for an Olympic Games and all the big events that you've got on the on the table. So it's kind of Rather than focusing too hard on the 2019 season, you, you've already qualified for the Olympics, correct?
1: I did. Yeah, they just announced um, at USA Cycling that the qualification will hold, and uh, and we get to keep that automatic spot, which is really, uh, really great.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, I mean, it's well deserved too. So, I mean, while we're talking about that qualification, you know, when we're looking at that last 12 months that you just had, I mean. Could you have imagined, you know, that that first World Championship title in 2018 in Lenzerheide, Switzerland. I mean, I watched that race because I'm a big mountain bike fan, you know. I, I just personally, I I yes, I spent my whole life doing triathlon, but in 2015-16 when I was sort of winding down my career, I I got back on the mountain bike after almost 25 years and and immediately just started watching Red Bull TV and and watching the races and in all honesty, I preferred to watch the women's racing 90% of the time. Don't tell Nino that. It was just because Nino was so dominant that it wasn't close racing. Whereas the women's racing was, you just didn't know what was going to happen. And so it became like there was probably 10 of you that could win on any given day. And when you won that race in 2018, I think your best World Cup, you hadn't won a World Cup. You had certainly hadn't been on a podium on the elite level, I don't think, had you? And, and you went and won that. That race. Tell me about that experience and and how emotionally uplifting that was. It must have just been incredible.
1: Yeah. First of all, I I love your comments about the women's field. I certainly feel that way that, you know, anyone in the top 10 can win and it's so competitive at the moment and it makes the racing fun to watch, but it also makes it really fun to race. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, I think, you know, coming into the elite field was a huge step. I think it was a bigger step than I thought it would be. Um, partially just because the racing is different. It's so much closer together. Uh, you might be, you know, four or five laps into a six-lap race and with a group of 10, which means, you know, in a positive way, you can think, oh, I could get the best place out of this group. Um, but if you're not accustomed <laughs> to being in a, in a tight group like that and you're looking around at elite women thinking, oh, you know, I, I don't have a chance in this group. Um, and that, that was something I really had to adapt to. And I think a lot of it was physical, you know, just getting used to the physical demands of those races. Um, but a lot of it too was mental and and learning the tactics and not wasting mental energy, um, you know, at the beginning of the race and putting myself in the right position so that if I had the right day, I, I could execute. Um, and I feel like that's what happened at world championships. I was, uh, you know, getting closer and closer. And for people that were really paying attention, I um, had a lot of races where I was riding in the top three or, you know, that top podium's position for a lot of the race and then either cracked or had issues. Um, and in Mont St. Anne, I was riding in second for most of the race and was coming into the last lap in third and then got a flat, crashed, had a mechanical, lost a front finish and and did get on the podium. Um, but I think for me, that was the first moment of realizing that, of course, that wasn't my day, but I had the physical ability to potentially be in one of those podium spots. Um, so when I went to World Championships, you know, of course, the the kind of level three goal was to get top ten. The level two goal was to get top five, and and the kind of dreamer's goal was to get a medal. Um, but when I found myself in the right position and and had an opportunity to really make it happen, I I felt like I had been preparing myself all year to take advantage of that and commit and ride the way that I needed to ride to deserve to win on that day.
0: Did you feel, I mean, take me through that race a little bit again, and and especially for listeners that may not have watched it, because that was a race where it was between yourself, Yolanda Neff, who seems to be you and Yolanda are going to, I think, going to be going head-to-head for many, many years and, and Pauline Ferrand Um, And I think if we throw Annika Langvad in there, if she has a, she was a bit off last year, but there, there's so many of you that have that potential and this is what makes it so fun to watch you all race. That race, the lead changed so many times and it was almost like you were the one that just popped out at the end, wasn't it? I mean, tell me, tell me a little bit, take me through that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think it was an interesting race for me, partially because I didn't expect to win. Um, and I think as an athlete, that can sometimes be a huge advantage when you're excited to be riding a medal position um, and not focus on the outcome. And we always try to you know, recreate that uh, through mental techniques and using sports psychology and focusing on the process. But when it's genuine, when you genuinely don't expect to win and feel like you have to, Um, it it really freed me up to just race the best race I could. Um, And I think, you know, in the end for me, that's what enabled me to take the lead on the last lap is really racing within myself, um, staying collected, staying focused on my process goals, you know, being focused on things as silly as hitting this line perfectly, you know, getting around this route instead of, okay, where's the winner? Could I win? How far ahead is she? Um, All the things that come into your mind when you're really focused on a result, those things can be distracting. And so I think the kind of underdog possession was a huge advantage in that event.
0: It's funny, you've, you've, gosh, you're my third or fourth guest almost in a row over the last six or seven weeks that's just basically said, you know, I went into this race with no expectations and, and it was freeing. I had Helen Jenkins who won the 2008 World Triathlon Championships and she said, look, I'd already made it to the Olympic team. The British just needed another a third spot for the British team, so I went to Vancouver and I really just went and had fun. And boom, she said, you know, suddenly I'm a world champion and I think she was probably about your age, you know, that 22, 23. It was just an incredible race. And then Sebastian Kinlay just the uh, last couple of weeks and and he won the 2014 World Championships at Kona uh, Ironman. And he was basically saying the same thing, you know. I just went in there it was just like, yeah, the pressure's off. I've already done what I need to do and, and it's completely freeing. I can do whatever I want. And it's like you said, how do we tap into that when when now you're one of the favourites in any race you go to? I mean, you don't have the resume that you've just created over these last couple of years without, you know, the media being on you, your peers looking at you. So how do you get into that mental frame of mind where you keep enough expectation on yourself to get the most out of yourself without it being taking away from the freeing feeling that you need as an athlete. I mean, you you said you're working with a sports psychologist with all of that. How does that work for you? Are you able to tap into that?
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely the challenge. And you know, you say it as, as an athlete, as your career progresses, you're always trying to find that mental edge. And I think for me, it's a lot about giving myself the right frame of mind to have that personal expectation to push myself as hard as I can go and to want to achieve all that I can achieve but not to let it turn into an expectation or external pressure that you know can really limit you from doing that um and I think you know the the mindset changes at every point for me last season lining up in the rainbow jersey on a new team um you know racing among some of the best riders in the world and that that certainly was a new level of pressure for me At first, it was pressure that people thought, you know, Worlds was a fluke. She can't do it. And as soon as I won a few times, people said she'll never lose again, which is another time of pressure. (laughs) Um, And I think what I realized is um, you can kind of create your own framework. And my framework that year is that I was capable and I was confident in a new way, but that in many ways, like I had already won. Like just lining up in the world champion jersey is such an honor. I could look down at my little rainbow outfit every time I lined up and think, you know, is it possible? Could I win? And and look down and say, well, it's happened before. So it's, it's not such a crazy dream. It, it could happen. Um, and I think for me, that level of confidence and just belief in myself that comes only from proving yourself uh, more in terms of my own goals, not you know, proving yourself to everyone else. I think that type of mindset and, and internal strength um, can actually be a huge advantage as well, even when you're you know, fighting for wins and not necessarily uh, in as much of an underdog position.
0: Yeah. It's almost like you take the pressure off by going, I've already done it. I've already done it. I've already done what every mountain biker in the world wants to do. I've already done it, so now I can just go have fun. And, I, and I've heard you quote that fun is fast, you know, and, and that's it. You can almost, by taking that pressure off going, I've already got the rainbow jersey, I've already done it. It, it really is a freeing effect. And just you mentioned 2019 and and coming out and everybody's saying, oh, okay, now she's going to walk up. So let's just have a look at that because 2019 really did start off with a bang. It was really fantastic because it was a little bit of like, hey, guys, this was not a fluke and you came out and the first race of the year in Alpstad in Germany. I think that's in Germany, correct? (laughs) And, and, And you, you did the double there for people that don't know mountain biking. These days you have a short track race on the Friday before the Sunday longer race. And the short track race gives you half the amount of points towards the world cup overall. And, I think Annika Langvad may have done the double once before, but generally speaking, the athlete that wins on the Friday doesn't often win on the Sunday. Maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me, but you came out with a real bang on that first race and just said, okay, guys, <laughs> that wasn't a fluke. How was that? Was that a little bit of like, okay, I, I, I do belong in this but to yourself?
1: Absolutely. I think, uh, I surprised myself a little bit there, especially winning a flat short track. Um, that mm-hmm. is definitely not my strength sprinting and, you know, no, not a lot of climbing, a lot of tactics. I'm typically, uh, someone who just goes as hard as I can and isn't as good at the tactical side of it. Um, but coming into that year, a lot of those things that I've been working on, the sprint power, the tactics, the positioning, um, all came together on that day. And I think, I was really proud to start the season that way. Um, and I, I think for me, it, it was just a really special moment to take that win in the rainbow Jersey as well. And to kind of feel like that rainbow Jersey curse was off my back in a way. Um, and it, it again, freed me up to race confidently on the XC day on Sunday. And I think that's what it all comes down to, you know, in a race like short track, our power numbers are pretty similar. Everyone's you know, really tight and really close. And a lot of times what makes a difference is not I'm way stronger or way better than someone else. It's uh mental fortitude, it's tactics, it's knowing how and when to um really put your power down. And that's something that I'm still continuing to learn and work on and that, you know, some of the writers in the field like Pauline are absolutely masterful at. Um and I think for me that was an exciting way to to see some progress in those little Things and to also build the confidence I needed to, you know, put the power down when I could and when I needed to in the race on Sunday.
0: Mm, it was an incredible start, and then you backed it up again a week later in the big race in in, in Czech Republic in Nov. Is it Czech Republic? Novomestě. It is, yeah. It is, yeah. So I mean, that's that's a huge race for anybody that wants to watch mountain biking and watch huge crowds. The, the Czechs just love it, and it's it's a really great visual, um, both for, on Red Bull TV and, and I think for the spectators. And, and so you then came out again the following week and you were fourth on the, the, the short track, but then boom, you went and won again on the Sunday. So, so doing that, that little back to back two weeks there, did you come home after Europe, um, back to the US or did you stay in Europe? Uh, how, how did that all work for you? Because you're on a high, you've started the year off with a bang. Now you're by far the World Cup favorite for the year. You've already got all the points. You know, Yolanda Neff is right behind you as she seems to be always there or thereabouts. Did you come home and just go, oh, take a deep breath? How was that sort of transitioning for you?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. I think, you know, on paper, all those races look like dominance, but in the moment, those races were so hard. And River uh, <laughs> is one of the, the biggest examples of that. I went out with the lead group and completely blew up. Um, and then of course, you know, mentally that was really tough coming off a weekend where I was thinking, Oh, I have the strength to ride with anyone and, and getting completely dropped is uh, not a great way to start. Um, I got a flat, I was in sixth and then I, you know, had that little break and reset mentally and worked my way back up and started feeling better and riding like myself and ended up passing in the last lap, um, to take the win. So that was an insanely unexpected uh, race and one that I had to dig really deep for. So I wouldn't say that I came off that block saying, Oh yeah, I got it. I was coming off that block saying, wow, I'm, I'm capable of doing this, but it is absolutely going to take all I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was really motivating for me as well as having the right team around me. Um, that was my first season with Scott's Ram racing and having Frischi as a mentor and Nino as a teammate Um, I think has really influenced the way that that season went and, you know, really kept my head on straight during that entire experience because I think, you know, Nino and Frischi have won at the elite level. They've won at the highest level for many years. Um, And they know that no win is so big and no loss is so big. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think with them, it really helped me understand that I'm a professional athlete. I want to keep getting better. My focus is on, you know, being my best at each one of these events. And after the race, we celebrate, we enjoy it. Um, you know, we drink Fletchinello if I win and then we reset, we refocus and we figure out how to win the next one. Um, and the same goes for a loss. Uh, you know, we have a glass of wine, move on and figure out how to be better. And I think for me, that was, um, you know, why I really wanted to be on that team and became absolutely invaluable as soon as I Uh, Stuffed into the 2019 season. Mm.
0: It's an incredible group that you've got around you, that team. Thomas Frischneck, for people that don't know, has just been, was the king of the mountain biking world in the late 90s, but he's gone on to be just an incredible team director and managing all the different personalities of professional athletes is never easy for anybody <laughs> that's been around professional athletes we we can be a little bit emotional at times even when we look like we've got all uh, it all, all our shit together it really we, we we can be hurting and to have a strong personality around us just to manage all those highs and lows that we might be feeling and then to have nino schurter in your corner who He's probably the greatest mountain biker of all time. I I think when we look at what he's done over this last 10 to 15 years, it's just extraordinary. So to have those two, to be the people that you come into the, you know, back into your little grouping and and you can share your feelings and everything else. I can understand why you said, right, Scott Schramm want me on their team. For me, that's just such a huge bonus to have those guys amongst me. But I mean, you, you touched on something that I loved also when you said, the the pain I was feeling in that second race. Sometimes when I look back at my own career and my wife, we often look back and we go, you forget how much it hurt to win a race. You go, you can only remember the joy. It's like the emotional joy overtakes. You forget the two hours of suffering or the hour and a half of suffering that you actually went through. and, And that must have been a little bit the case that second race where it was like, whoa, this really, really hurts. I don't remember last week hurting so bad. And it's kind of like, Ah, you get that nice reminder that in order to become the best or to win a major race, you've got to be able to suffer, you know? So I love that. I love that you you went through that experience because I think that helps you with your maturity as well.
1: Yeah. But I also would say, I think when you're aligned, when you have the right team around you, you have the right goals, you've prepared as well as you possibly can. And you're put in that position where you have a chance. Um, you know, I think for me, in 2019, I I really felt supported. I felt like, you know, Frischie's on the sidelines running from spot to spot, giving me splits and telling me how far ahead the next girl was and you can catch her. And I had Brad, my mechanic in the pit who did a 20 second wheel change that probably, you know, made all the difference in terms of me being able to catch the leader and, you know, having my soigneur and and just all these people around me who believed in me, who are doing it for the right reasons, who um, wanted to see me succeed, but who I know didn't expect anything, or um, you know would would sit there and cry with me if I DNF'd the race. Uh, mm-hmm. That really motivated me and gave me this extra gear to say, like they've put their trust, their belief, their time, their effort into me. Um, I've put my own time, belief, and effort into myself, and the result of that is that I have a chance. It's not a guarantee. There are no guarantees in racing, but I have a chance. And that race became about taking advantage of that in the best way possible. And, you know, really using all of that positive energy to take advantage of that opportunity.
0: Mm. I've said it on this show many, many times. So forgive me listeners, if I'm repeating myself, but I've, I've said many times that it's important to have a team of experts, but those experts that actually want the best for you, it just it goes another level, and again, forgive me, listeners, but my my massage therapist Marcus Mahias in, in Boulder. You know, if I'd had a bike crash or anything else, he would drop anything every evening to come over to me and, and just work on my body and get me going again. And he, it wasn't for payment. It wasn't for anything else other than just he wanted the best for me. And when you have those people that are surround you, and, and you know you're you're twenty 24, twenty four, you're you're so young, and you've already got this incredible team behind you that are going to set you up going forward because for many athletes it takes a long time to build that team to find the right personalities to find the people that want to work with them so it really is an amazing team and I said it in the introduction that you've created this team around you so early to prepare you for the journey going forward and the the power within a team and relationships is so incredible that you need that with the highs and the lows and so moving forward into 2019 you know you you come out with a bang. You you then, did you come back home to the US after those couple of races at the start or did you stay in Europe?
1: Um, I did come home. So I was there for three weeks and then came home for June um, and then headed back over for the next couple of rounds.
0: Yeah, and so then Val Nord and Les, Les, Les gets in, in France. So Val Nord was a bit a bit rocky for you, but that was a little bit, was that because of the travel? Was that coming home? How did that race feel for you after two big wins? And then I think you were eighth or something on on that race. Um, That first race back in Val Nord, how did that feel?
1: That was a little bit brutal. Um, I think one of the things that, you know, wasn't apparent last year um, was that we were really focused on the Olympics. So a lot of the prep I did Mm -hmm. instead of going to altitude, we were thinking about heat acclimation or, um, you know, instead of, maybe doing, going over to Europe early, getting more time to work on specific things that will help me heading into Tokyo. And of course I know now we have extra time. Um, but those learnings were really valuable and there were times, um, that we had to make trade-offs in terms of my world cup season. Uh, now those trade-offs got a lot more painful when I found myself in the lead, uh, you know, when we made my big plan early on, um, we were going to sacrifice a few World Cups, and then all of a sudden, I realized I couldn't sacrifice any World Cups. Um, mm-hmm. So, a lot of those races were just about gritting it through. And uh, you know, I was I was proud of that result. I think it's hard to put into words how difficult it is to stay mentally positive in a race where you hope to be at the front. You go out hard, and you're at the front, and then you find yourself in 14th. Um, I think you know, forcing yourself to care. Okay, can I get up one spot? Can I make up one position? Those types of moments are what makes the difference in a World Cup overall. Um, And I think, you know, the days that you win, of course, come with a lot of points. But in the end, we are separated by, you know, hundreds, not thousands of points, obviously. Uh, And, you know, every position that you make up, every place that you refuse to drop back on your worst days are what enables you to stay in the running for the overall.
0: That's really interesting that you were preparing for Tokyo so early and trying to get you, you, know, the heat acclimation and everything else that you were talking about because you can see the evidence within the year that was like, hang on, I've got to do all these World Cups because, okay, you got the 8th at Val Nord, but then you, bang, you came out and won again in Les, Les Gets, which is just an incredible double win again because I think you won the short track that day. and But then you can see Val de Soleil where it was like, okay, this is getting a little tough, 17th, you know, <laughs> and then, yeah. and then Lenzahyde, um when you came seventh where you'd won the world championship the year before. But by Lenzenheide, you'd realize that now it was between yourself and the Swiss girl Yolanda Neff for the World Cup series. And so the goal there was to beat Yolanda Neff. It wasn't so much about because now the focus surely was on winning the World Cup series, was it not?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, it's really interesting to look back at. I feel like my uh my mental state fluctuated a lot during the season as it always does. Um, I would say Leger was the, you know, kind of high point of my year in many ways, because I took those back-to-back wins in front of my family. So um, I think one of my biggest fears after I won the first two World Cups was that I would never have the chance to win a World Cup in the Rainbow Jersey in front of my family. Um, Mm. Because a a lot of things have to happen for that to Mm. be the case. And I hope to, you know, have an experience like that again. But Leger, for me, it was that opportunity to do it in front of my parents and my boyfriend and our family friends. And um, that was really special. Uh, But I think, you know, as you mentioned, Val, the soul 17th, I think by that point, um, I I was just tired. And I think, you know, athletes are afraid to say that. But for human beings, it's a long season. And I think for me, um, you know, coming into this whirlwind year really pushing myself to the next level and trying to say, okay, I'm here. I can race on the elite level um, and and being successful and then dealing with the pressure that came with that and being in the national champion, Pan Am champion, world champion, and World Cup overall lead at the same time was a bit of a difficult task in terms of pressure. And I think, um, you know, I definitely felt a little burned out by Val de and it took Again, that team around me to help me just rest. I basically just rested when I was in Las Hyde and um, this is where I give you know my coaching team so much credit. Frischie, my coach Jim Miller, my sports psychologist, my nutritionist, they all were like, you just need to have fun. like you love racing your bike. You're a competitor, you're fit. I know you're tired, but like you love racing your bike so go do that and have fun. Um, and I think it was probably the only race in my career so far where my actual goal was just to have fun, uh, because Valsol had been such a miserable experience. And, um, I just was really burnt out on that. And, uh, you can see the pictures of me from lens I'm smiling. I'm like hitting the little gap jumps. Uh, I had a blast. I got seventh and I feel like that was a turning point where, um, You know we were able to get me back on track and i got the rest that i needed when i went home and then was able to build into a strong finish for the season
0: well that's what it looks like it looks like when i looked at and even watching throughout the year um you know because before you it was always sort of annika langvad that would start the year off crushing everybody and then she would often just tail off towards the end but I thought, oh, we're gonna, Kate's gonna tail off here. But every race you just kept showing this grit and this determination. Like you said earlier, don't finish 14th if I can try and get myself up to eighth to seventh, because it all matters. And that was what was inspiring about your year last year. Almost as a spectator. And I'm talking about I'm on the other side of the Red Bull TV spectating. So it's I'm removed completely. I'm not anywhere near you. I don't know you. But Somebody that's watching and rooting for you to do the best. You could see that you were getting tired, but you kept showing up and kept fighting for that last spot. And getting to Snowshoe for, in the final race, and it was basically you and and Neff just took off incredibly hard. It was almost like you were just trying to punish each other and whoever breaks last is going to win. And it was like, and, and, you know, Yolanda fell off you earlier and she dropped way back. And then suddenly you dropped way back and it was like, oh no, but you kept, you kept fighting and, and you ended up coming fifth in, in snowshoe and and won that world cup. So tell me about that race, because obviously there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of fatigue. You wanted that world cup series. You know, it was the week following your world championship defense, where I think you were fifth at. Quebec which was was an outstanding you know representation of the rainbow jersey but then you backed it up again in snowshoe and won the world cup series not only was it winning it but you won it in front of the American fans on home soil um tell me about that experience
1: yeah that was a really special moment um I think you know a, a theme that's coming out in all of these is a lot of it is about the stories we tell ourselves. And I think what you mentioned about Annika, you know, not having as good of end of the season in some years, or, you know, these things that reflect kind of the human nature of a sport where people do, you know, get tired and it's hard to manage and you learn something every year, but it's really difficult to have a season where you're on the whole time, unless you're Nino. Um, (laughs) And, For me, I think at Val de Soul and at Lenza I started to get sucked into that narrative of what people are saying. Um, at the beginning of the season, they saw me win two races and said, she'll never lose again, uh, which is a different type of pressure. Um, and then at those two races, they said, oh, she's done for the season. She burned out. <laughs> she's too hard. She should go home. It's over. Don't watch her anymore. Um, and it's so easy to start telling yourself that story and start saying, oh, I pushed it too far. And that, I think, is, again, where my team really comes in handy and where, you know, Jim Miller's experience is unparalleled in delivering athletes to the start line ready to perform. Um, he's coached to many Olympic medals, world championships. He's coached me to my world championship. And um, he, he didn't have that response. He said, okay, you're tired. Uh, you'll take a week to rest, and then we'll crush it at Worlds. It'll be fine. Um, and he had a plan, and he... You know, not only coached me physically to where I needed to be, but was also hugely impactful in terms of um, the belief and and acknowledging that mental side. Saying, "Yeah, you're exhausted. It's been a really stressful long season," um, but also motivating me. And mm-hmm. uh, our our motto for that was, "You've come too far to only come this far." And again, I kind of found myself in a little bit of an underdog position in my own mind, um, where I'd, I'd in many ways already kind of processed what it would mean to lose the overall. Like when I had those terrible races and I lost the lead, I thought, okay, well, I might not win, but you know, my goal is to have my best season possible in the rainbow Jersey and, um, to really just race as well as I can in this series. And if I get second, that's still way higher than what I thought I would get going into the season, Um, but I will die trying. And (laughs) that is what those two races showed. We, you know, developed a really, really aggressive tactic. I was definitely the aggressor in those races and was pretty much planning to blow up. Um, and just hoping that I could basically have enough grit to get me across the finish line, um, with enough space between Yolanda and I, that I would take the win. And it was, Again, very challenging, but I was able to do that. And um, when I crossed the finish line, it was one of the most special experiences of my life. The entire crowd started chanting USA. Um, my, you know, three of my uh, female athlete teammates on Team USA crossed the line shortly thereafter. And the four of us uh, celebrated at the finish line with this chanting and um, I, I just think that was a really, really special moment, and one that I worked really hard for—not only physically on the race course, but mentally, just to, you know, keep telling myself the right story and believe that I could get the ending I wanted. Mm,
0: I love that. I get goosebumps listening to it because it, it is an inspiring story. And and to go out and for people listening to this, you know when we all talk about pacing and we all talk about, you know, what's the best way to get the most out of ourselves. You didn't race that to get the best out of yourself. You, You raced it as much, well, you did get the best out of yourself, but, I mean, you raced it to try and make sure your competition couldn't get the best out of themselves, which is a part of racing. It's kind of like this, for you to race the six laps or whatever it was at Snowshoe, if it was an individual time trial, you wouldn't have raced it the way you did it, you know, which is absolutely going flat out from the gun. But you did that, which is an incredibly painful way to race. You know, it's not it's not fun to do it that way. You know that you're gonna blow and suffer at some point. But in order to try and take it out against your competition, you needed to try and flatten them as well. And then so who can just survive to the finishing line? It's an awfully tough way to race. But I but I do love it because and you did see it visually on on the screen as as you know you guys were all just suffering so badly. And then suddenly you, you're watching, you know, you fall off the pack and then you land. So it was just a, it was a, a really special year. So, okay, here's a question for you. World championship, Switzerland, 2018, or world cup overall, 2019, if you had to pick one.
1: Oh, the world championship. I, you know, <laughs> it's a special thing. I, I really both mean a lot to me. Um, and you know, every time that you're able to accomplish a lifelong dream, it's, you know, an unparalleled moment. But, uh, that world championship was, was really special. My family was there and I, um, you know, of course surprised myself a little bit in terms of taking that. And I also got my year in the rainbow Jersey. And for me, I've, I've written about this. I've talked about it a lot. Um, I was really kind of nervous about that. You know, people talk about it as a curse and, um, for me, it, it was a joy. I got to wear the special symbol of um, all that we love about cycling all year. I got to share it with my community. We had parties at the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. They actually still have rainbow stripes up around the building uh, in honor of that win. And um, I think for me, it was, it was just you know a gift and something that I'll never forget and uh, hope to someday earn again.
0: I'm sure you will. A quick mini break to remind you to go check out Any Question. You can find it on the App Store, Any Question, one word, or you can use anyquestion.com forward slash r forward slash Kate to ask Kate follow-up questions to this podcast. What I love about mountain biking is you have both. You can be the World Cup Series champion, which means a hell of a lot, and then you can have the one day as well. Um, and I wish sort of triathlon would go to that where we have the one day, which is very, very special, where you've got to get up for it the one day of the year. And then you also have the world cup series overall. Um, so yeah, for triathlon, it's kind of like, you, it's just a series win and that makes you the world champion. Now they do have a grand final, which I think you get extra points or something, but it's, it's not a world title on its own right. And I wish they would do that because I think the way that mountain biking is set up is, is really great. Um, I want to, I want to just wind I the clock back the- now. Mm. Sorry, go on.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, it's really interesting, um, to think about that because in many ways, I think the rainbow Jersey is a bigger honor in our sport. Um, but as we've talked about today, you know, all the races and all of the moments that go into a world cup overall, I would say it's way, way, way harder to win. Um, you know, both are huge honors. Um, but yeah, I always find it interesting to compare the two.
0: Mm. what i love about mountain biking is you have both you can be the world cup series champion which means a hell of a lot and then you can have the one day as well um and i wish sort of triathlon would go to that where we have the one day which is very very special where you got to get up for it the one day of the year and then you also have the world cup series overall um so yeah for triathlon it's kind of like it's just a series win, and that makes you the world champion now. They do have a grand final, which I think you get extra points or something, but it's, it's not a world title on its own right. And I wish they would do that because I think the way that mountain biking is set up is, is really great. Um, I want to I just wind the clock back now. Mm. Sorry, go on.
1: Oh, I was just going to say it's really interesting um, to think about that because in many ways I think the rainbow jersey is a bigger honour in our sport. Um, but as we've talked about today – you know, all the races and all of the moments that go into a world cup overall, I would say it's way, way, way harder to win. Um, <laughs> and, you know, bo- both are huge honors. Um, but yeah, I always find it interesting to compare the two. Mm,
0: I think it's just fantastic that you've done both. I mean, you must pinch yourself every now and then and just go, wow, I've actually, I've set out and, and done both. Obviously you've got Olympic dreams and, and lots more dreams beyond that, but, to have both and be 24 years of age is, um, it's really, it's really pretty incredible. You must pinch yourself. Cause there's a lot of, a lot of young athletes out there. that are just like, Oh, that'd be just the greatest feeling in the world. So, and, and, you know, you've worked incredibly, incredibly hard for it and suffered like a dog for it, but it's nice to at least have both of them, um, you know, in, in your pocket already. So,
1: yeah. um, I'm, I'm very, you know, I, I'm so happy that, those two things came together this early in my career. I think it, again, takes some of the pressure off and allows me to just really focus Mm -hmm. on uh, my goals moving forward. But, you know, I I will say that no matter what you do in your sport, there's always a next thing. Um, You know, can I do the same thing better? Can I do it again? Could I win worlds leading off the front and not coming from behind? Could I, uh, you know, win a World Cup overall that didn't come down to a, a, like... Mm-hmm. It's a box that said how many points I needed on the last lap that my dad held up. Like, could I <laughs> maybe have that decided a little earlier? Um, and that in sport is what really pushes us as individuals and moves the whole sport forward. Is that I think each athlete is thinking that way, and um, you know, as I said earlier, no big is no win is so big, and no loss is so big. There's mm. always a next event.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny. And I have shared this story before, so I apologize to listeners, but I'll never forget back in 2004. And I'd just come off sort of winning the World Cup series in triathlon a couple of years in a row. And it had that consistency, but I hadn't won the one day world championship title. And and I was, I was warming up for the Olympics with um, the, my mate, uh, Peter Robinson, who'd won three world championship titles. So the one day events, but he'd never won a World Cup, not one World Cup. And And we were running along and we both had fairly successful careers and I was kind of going, oh, I'd just love to have one world championship title, you bastard, you know. And he's like, man, I'd just love to win one World Cup, you know. And so my point with all of that is I feel like no matter what you do and it's the mind of a champion athlete, there's, there's always more. You always want this... You know, I want to win the, the clean sleep sweep like Nino Schurter did with the World Cup Series in, was that 2017 he did that or 2018, um, where he went undefeated for the whole year. Just incredible. But I, I imagine even Nino's still sitting going, oh, I would have liked to have won London Olympics, but I only got a silver there and I got a bronze in Beijing. But finally I got my gold in Rio. But I, But there's this kind of this mindset with an athlete like, Okay, there's always more to add to the list, and that's what just keeps us inspiring. Otherwise, we would just retire, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. And um, I was doing—I did a little web webinar with my high school the other day, and you know, people wrote in questions and were asking about, you know, what advice you give to young racers, like a ten-year-old who wants to, you know, be a world champion. Um, and I think for me, what really differentiates the athletes at the top of the sport. Are people like Nino, who you know, for for all intents and purposes, from the outside, has done everything you can do in their sport and more than we thought was possible. Um, Yet, you know, if you spend time with him, he is constantly finding ways to improve. Um, He's obsessed with it, and you know, he's always learning something new, trying something different, and um, you know, in the same sense, trusting his process and and continuing to toil away at it. Um, And for me, you know, I've made really consistent chain or consistent progress year over year. Um, it just so happens that when you can keep doing that for seven or eight years, you might actually find yourself in the position of, of trying to win a world championship. Um, and so I think that is really a good point is that, you know, focus on consistent progress and chasing that next goal and that next goal. um, and a lot of those small steps will, know really accumulate and kind of produce seasons like nina's perfect season
0: mm. i mean he was fascinating when i had him on the show a while back and he, and i was talking to him about matthew uh matthew uh, vanderpoel uh, who's just one of the greatest cyclists in the world right now as, as you know and and he's just loving having matthew here he's like i don't want to win all the t- i want to be i want the struggle i want to find out how i have to improve to beat someone like him. And he's just loving the the idea of finding ways, like you said, of how do I get a little bit better here, 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 and here to match Matthew's absolute power, you know, that that he has. And he, so he, he's loving it. And I've, it was almost like his passion was reinvigorated by having such a tremendous athlete come next to him and he has this real competitor. and And you already have that amongst the women i mean that's like i said before there there isn't you're not a standout you you've you've won the world championships and you've won the world cup series but boy there's just such a good quality field around you that's just going to keep forcing you to find motivation and the passion to to find those little things to step on that top dais i mean are you loving that that part that these other women are just helping you find the best you possible
1: Absolutely. I think, um, you know, we're really fortunate to have this level of competition and especially I think right now, that's something that is really motivating for me. Um, even in this time of quarantine where, you know, we don't have competition and we don't have a lot of those incremental goals, that kind of performance goals that I use to assess myself and make changes and, um, really motivate throughout the season. I'm able to really find that without uh racing at all and to think about the ways um that you know like Nino's trying to match certain aspects of matthew's performance i'm doing the same thing i'm trying to learn how i can possibly beat uh you know certain riders that have really specific strengths mm-hmm. uh, and i think have you watched the last dance yet
0: no, I haven't. <laughs>
1: okay, I highly recommend it. It is. Yeah, the, uh, yeah.
0: I, I do watch it. I think you're the third person that's been on this epi- on this show that said I have to watch it, but go it's on. A
1: good one. Um, but Michael Jordan in it is talking about um the Bulls trying to beat the Pistons and how he kind of invents these rivalries in his mind that encourage him to, you know, sharpen his swords and take himself to the next level. Um, and it comes out in the series that a lot of it is, is actually made up like he makes up uh you know what an athlete might have said to him that disrespected him and he has to come out and beat them but it's it's really valuable mental fuel um and i think for me it's been really interesting to think about those rivalries for myself and um how to motivate myself and really you know reinstall that hunger that i felt before i'd ever won a race um, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, there's always ways to find that. If Nino can still do it, um, all of us can absolutely still do it.
0: How, how does that go with your personalities amongst you and the other women on the start line? I mean, you all come across friends, hugs, all of that. We, I get it. Like you said, Michael Jordan's making up some of that stuff to fuel himself. Is there a little bit of that where you kind of go... Okay, so and so, so I'm not mentioning names, but but you know, you're trying to find something about them that that almost pisses you off, that makes you want to to find the fuel.
1: I think sometimes those rivalries can be fun, but all in all, I think there's a really healthy competition in the women's field right now, and um, you know, all the, all the hugs are genuine. I think uh, we have true competitors in our field. Um, I would say Nino's a true competitor, Matthews a true competitor, where they don't want to win because one of them fell down a rock garden or couldn't finish or got sick the day before they want. Um, and I would say I want, and the other women in our field want, you know, the other athletes to have their best day ever and to beat them. Um, and I think when you use that as your standard, it's, it's easy to find motivation cause that's a really high standard to set for your own performance. And it's, it's trying to be your absolute best, Um, and if you continue to chase that and you're able to produce that, if I produce my best race possible and I get beaten, um, that's okay. Like I will find a way to adjust and get better and improve, but it's, it's about wanting, uh, that fight.
0: Mm -hmm. You, You sound like my wife, Laura. She was always saying, look, I, I just want to race the best. So I know. And I'm like, yeah, sometimes it's nice just to win when the best aren't there too. You know, I, I, <laughs> I enjoy taking the wins even when the best weren't there. But I get what you're saying and I've heard it a million times from my wife, Laura, that there's nothing more special than, than beating the best on their day. And even if you don't beat them, if you've had a, an amazing performance yourself, you still walk away um, feeling good about yourself. But there is something very, very special about crossing that line first though. I'm not going to lie. (laughs) So it's sometimes I was just very good at picking the right races. (laughs) What was that?
1: I said winning is always fun. (laughs)
0: Exactly, exactly. So I do want to wind the clock back a little bit. Just um, when did you sort of first find your passion for endurance sports? Um, I know you've done a lot with your dad at a young age, but, but was that when you decided, you know, I'm going to be an endurance athlete, a cyclist?
1: No, I think, uh, yeah, it came much later for me. I grew up doing all kinds of sports. I was a ski racer. I played soccer. I rode horses. I did gymnastics and didn't have talent in any of those things. Um, <laughs> but I grew up riding my bike with my dad. And for me, it was just fun. I you know grew up in Marin County where that's a very normal weekend thing to do and part of growing up there. Um, and I got a real appreciation for the mountain and being out. And they were some of my favorite memories. But I never had exposure to racing. Uh, I think aside from my dad watching the Tour de France, I hadn't seen a race and that changed in high school. Um, I, you know, started running cross country in the fall. And I think that was, you know, the first time I started to embrace this identity as an athlete, I won um, kind of our regional cross country championships as a freshman. And that was like my, you know, biggest, I never won things. I was not a very good ski racer. I. I you know, didn't do well in a lot of these individual sports that I'd tried before. And once I found endurance sports, um, that was kind of my place. And I felt that in running. And when I tried mountain biking in the spring as part of a high school mountain bike team, it clicked. And I felt like I'd found my place and um somewhere that I could really excel in the ways that, you know, I had natural ability, but also in the ways that I enjoyed training and enjoyed racing. Um and that was what really got me hooked on endurance sports.
0: Were you, were you a naturally competitive kid? I had Sebastian Kinley on, like I mentioned, and, and we were both laughing about how we were so competitive, but not in a good way. Like we were, we were almost unhealthy kids. You know, I'd throw the ping pong bat at my brother's head if I lost kind of thing. And he, he talks about throwing the whole ping pong table in a tournament because he <laughs> got beaten by his brother. Were you a competitive kid like that? Or was it kind of you were competitive and sort of just got into it?
1: Interestingly enough, I think I was quite competitive, but, um, you know, as I said, I was was kind of mediocre as a kid.
0: Yeah, (laughs) me me too, by the way. So Um, I get where you're coming from.
1: And and I think it's it's really interesting. Um, I, I was really competitive against myself. Um, and I think that's what ultimately led me in the direction of endurance sports is I loved being out on the mountain and running or riding by myself and saying, can I get to this, uh, higher mountain peak? Can I do it twice? Can I do it faster? Um, and that in endurance or sports is, is really rewarded. Um, and I think once I found a place for that, you know, specific type of competitiveness, uh, I really started to thrive.
0: Mm. And, and so was it a specific moment that you were like, okay, like you said, the high school, you know, mountain bike racing, was there a, a moment in that where you're like, oh man, this is, this is, I've found the thing that I want to do.
1: Yeah, my first race. I think, uh, you know, it was everything I loved about running being out, you know, pushing myself, being out on the mountain. There's obviously a big social component of both running and riding, but you also had all of these other elements. It was tactical, it was technical, there's equipment. You get to go up steep hills, down steep hills, and navigate rock gardens. And it was just uh, like the most fun thing I'd ever done. Um, and I won my first race and I told my mom after it, I'm never running again. Um, and was completely hooked on the sport from that very first moment.
0: That is so brilliant. I love that. I mean, I've grown up, I'm a real passionate about the running, but when I started the mountain biking, I'm not going to lie. I hear what you're saying. Mountain biking was like, wow, you can go so much further. You can have so much more fun. You can get lost in the forest. And, for everybody listening that's an ultra runner or whatever, I'm not saying I don't love running as well. I'm just saying how fantastic it is to mountain bike as oh, well. And
1: yeah. <laughs> and
0: when, was there a moment then where you were like, okay, I'm going to go all in because then you you went off to study at Stanford, which is quite incredible in its its own way. Um, were you racing professionally while you were at Stanford? Because you weren't on a cycling scholarship or anything there, were you?
1: No they don't they don't really have uh, varsity cycling at a lot of schools, so um, I was just a regular student and yeah racing on a professional contract as well um, in the u twenty three World Cup series and yeah, I think there you know there's a lot of little moments in some ways again, it was a huge advantage that I didn't know the landscape of the sport. so when I started out, I didn't know how far I had to go. Um, I just kept focusing on the next little thing oh, could I win? the NorCal championships. Could I win national championships? Could I win a world cup? You know, it, it really started small and I was just focused on those incremental goals without a real idea of where it could go. Um, but I think, you know, my, my junior year of college, I started to perform better in the U23 world cups. I was getting top fives and finishing on the podium. Um, and I had the opportunity to start training with Jim Miller Um, and that was obviously a a huge honor for me to be able to train with him. And I think, um, there was some, you know, there was a healthy dose of me just wanting to impress him and and get his respect and show that I would, you know, train hard and, and really wanted to win. And that can be so motivating as a young athlete, um, to have a mentor like that and someone that's guiding you that you trust and, um, that, you know, has, has led people to the types of results that you hope to someday be capable of getting. Um, Mm. And so, me, I think that was really a turning point, uh, both in terms of having that level of training, but also having someone who believed in me and and saw big possibilities that I, you know, hadn't really believed in before then.
0: And so Jim, tell me a little bit more about Jim, because I, I don't know Jim as a, as a coach. Is he, is he based in the U S and is he a, a cycling coach that we should all know about? And I apologize if I'm, <laughs> I'm sounding naive.
1: <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he, uh, is the head of, uh, high performance at USA cycling. Um, yeah. so he was on Armstrong's coach, uh, mm-hmm. for her entire career and, um, has worked with a lot of the best, you know, mountain road time trial athletes from the U S, Uh and I think for me, it just was a really great fit. Uh, I'm a big data person. He is as well. And so is my dad. So I kind of ended up with this great team around me that makes training really fun. And both my dad and Jim have been, um, really instrumental for me in terms of of raising that confidence level and painting that vision for the future. I think as an athlete, uh, sometimes it's, it's hard to, like say that you want to win a world championship or, or say that you have this goal and believe it. Um, and long before I believed in those goals, my dad and Jim were saying, Hey, you know, maybe, maybe this would be possible. Um, and <laughs> it's really it's really important to have those people planting those seeds um, that you know will be with you every step of the way. And even if they say it first and you think, oh, maybe not eventually you'll be in a position where you can make a step towards that dream and that voice will come back in your head and you'll say, oh, well, Jim and my dad think I can do it. So might as well try.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love how, you know, one of the big things about this show that I love to do is sort of talk about the importance of team and relationships. And, and you've mentioned this throughout the entire episode of just all the, all these key figures in, you know, your dad, Jim, you know, um, Fishy. Brad the mechanic, your boyfriend, your mum. I mean, you've surrounded yourself with such an incredible team of people that all want the best for you. It's just, it really is you can't do it alone. And and that was that's one of the things that I want to sort of emphasize when when I do these chats is for people listening, look, if you're out there and you're trying, even if you're an amateur and age group triathlete or mountain biker or, or runner, whatever you're doing. You need a good support team behind you, whether that's a bodywork person or a coach, or, or simply family members that are just behind you and what you're doing. Um, it, it's been really just fantastic to, you know, to hear you say that so so much. How much is your dad involved now that you've sort of gone with Scott Shram and you have Jim coaching you? Does he come to the races still, or is he starting to take a bit more of a back foot?
1: Uh, well, he'll be here in an hour to ride with me. Um, <laughs> I think I'd love to just say one thing about the team aspect of it. Um, I think, you know, that is advice I always give as well in terms of surrounding yourself with the right people and having the right people helping you. But I think there's more to it than that. Um, it's, it's about sharing this process and this journey with people that aren't just there to help you. They, they get something out of it. They love being a part of it. Um, and I really feel fortunate to have people that believe in the dream and want to be a part of it and that are there, um, no matter how it works out. But, but when it, when you win with people that you've worked together with to make something happen and that believed in it before you did, and that have been there every step of the way, it's an unparalleled experience. It's. Really magical. And I've had that, you know, at world championships. And last year, when Nino and I both won the World Cup overall on the same day, um, after obviously a year of traveling the world with this team and working so hard individually and together to, you know, bring our team to that finish line, it's, you know, some of the best moments of my entire life. Um, So Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, work with that team, not because it will help you, work with that team because it will make it all meaningful and fun and worth it in the end whether or not you win
0: that's really well said i love all of that thank you
1: I talk about um, my dad. I <laughs> what was that <laughs> I, I forgot to talk about my dad um but yeah he he's been an incredible part of my team and he chooses to be a part of it now he doesn't have to um i have really great professional support which is amazing but uh, there's nothing quite like riding my bike with my dad. And, um, he, you know, comes to a lot of the races as well with my mom. And, um, I think for us, it's just been this really great adventure that we get to be on together. Um, and you know, it, it's been really fun to share it with him.
0: I, I loved at the end of the last year when Rob Warner brought you up and, and you were getting interviewed post, post race and just, and then he asked your parents to come up as well. So I think everybody's recognizing how close you are with your family and, and how important they are to you and that they're sort of brought up. During the interview process, I don't know if you remember that, if it was all a a dream, but I I love that you brought your dad and your mom up and they got to sort of share in the moment with you, you know, with with all the cameras and everything else. So I just think it's fantastic. Um, I want to keep the show moving on a little bit here. And I'm, I'm curious, I have these kind of concepts that I think separate their wellness concepts, but basically what makes a a great athlete great and a, you know compared to a good athlete and and that is looking at things like your sleep, your nutrition, body work, your general health, and your training and and then specifically one area I love is your mental strategies. but sleep and recovery. I saw that you are working with a company called Whoop. I don't know if that's still the case, but I, I did see that and I've seen them since I looked it up on your website i now get all the ads on my instagram (laughs) um tell me about the the sleep and recovery and and are you able to get your naps in that you talk about um with these guys now
1: absolutely i I live for a good nap Uh, (laughs) no i so we started with whoop um jim actually introduced me to them the first year that i was racing full-time as a professional so that was in uh 2018 and that was the first time that I could prioritize sleep uh, after graduating from Stanford and, and finally having time to focus full time on being an athlete. Um, and that was one of the things that I realized is, you know, you can raise your volume quite a bit, but it's not going to fill 24 hours a day. Uh, the real key is recovering so that you can not only train that higher volume, but make the quality of those workouts as good as it possibly can be. Um, So for me, that meant a huge focus on recovery, getting sleep, naps, and and really studying what helped me recover better between workouts.
0: So so WHOOP in itself, though, that's just for people that don't know, it's you wear a wearable device, and then it it goes to an app on your your phone that basically just says your sleep quality, your length of sleep, and, and how good you feel. So basically, it's just giving you a data measurement that then you use as a guide, right, going forward?
1: Yeah, I think what's really helpful about Whoop is they do a really great job of packaging their data in a way that's usable. Um, so you probably have heard a lot about heart rate variability and resting heart rate and uh, you know, slow wave sleep and all these different factors that might indicate your recovery. But if you just had a spreadsheet every day with all those numbers, it wouldn't be that useful for you and for your team. Um, so for me, WHOOP's been really helpful in terms of quantifying that. It gives you a daily recovery score. Um, and, and once you understand the algorithm, you can also look at the fine data. So I'll look at my heart rate variability and resting heart rate, and you know, maybe one went up and one went down, and my recovery score went up or down, and I can now understand how those things track together. But um, you, you get a better picture of what's happening in your body, and it's one more data point uh, that can help you inform training decisions and be sure that you're doing the right things at the right time
0: mm. was, was that useful in 2019 was it showing you score you know how you said you were sort of physically getting was that a mental fatigue as that 2019 went on or was it a physical like was it giving you a score that said hey you should be not going out to train anymore and, and, and if so was that kind of a negative feedback were you kind of like ah i still want to i've got to train hard
1: and that's an interesting thing um Physically, I was actually pretty strong at that time and and recovering pretty well. I think, you know, a lot of it is mental fatigue. And as athletes, that's something that uh, we have to learn to manage. And, you know, as you kind of progress in your career, there's more things that you have to manage mentally in terms of press and media and signings and all all of these things. So I think for me, that that was really the source of that kind of mid-season fatigue. Um, But it is also really helpful to have that data because that was one thing we, you know, considered we're like, oh, did I really overtrain? Um, and we were looking at my loop numbers and my heart rate variability. And, and honestly, I think things went pretty well. Uh, I just spent a little too much time away from home and got a little too fatigued. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think we would know that, if we didn't have the data on how my body was physically adapting to training, we would just assume that I did too much training. Um, But instead, when, when you have these numbers and you're really paying attention to everything, you learn what factors might actually be impacting your training. And, and for me, that's going to be a huge learning moving forward, you know, coming into an Olympic year next year, making sure that I have adequate rest. I have times where I'm, you know, off social media and really able to focus on training and especially times at home. Um, Those are things that we can take away from that, that we might not have really recognized if I didn't have the physical data.
0: Mm. Talking, You you mentioned social media and we're talking about training. And and one of the things I've really enjoyed some of your posts that you put up on on Instagram or Twitter or wherever it is, and um, you are in the gym a lot. It looks like anyway or maybe that's just the days you post but and for anybody that hasn't that doesn't follow you on Instagram you should be following Kate Courtney because it is fantastic and one thing that you do and it looks like you do quite a lot is this you have the plate flipping on the balance board so you have these huge weights we call plates and you're flipping them in your hands and while you're standing on a balance board and that's just one of the things that I see you doing is, is gym a real foundation for you are you in there? are you in there as much as it looks on your Instagram <laughs>
1: Yeah, I uh I'm in the gym about three days a week right now and and it goes down to two when I'm in competition season. Um, but it's it's been really important for me. I came from a background in ski racing um where strength training is a huge part of what you do. And when I started mountain biking, it it wasn't a common practice. And so my coach when I was a junior actually told me that it was gonna make me worse and I shouldn't do it. Um, but I really felt that it it helped me on the mountain bike and um, you know, as a smaller rider, feeling like I had more strength, especially upper body and core strength, um, gave me more confidence descending and made me feel like I was in control of my bike and could navigate, uh, you know, these obstacles. So it's remained a really big part of my program. And of course now it's, uh, it's very trendy in mountain biking. So, uh, <laughs> it's, it's getting a lot more attention. Uh, but for me, I think it's a combination of, you know, that strength and, building explosive power. Um, and then as you said, you know, with the balance balls and throwing plates and juggling and all of these types of random things we do, um, I actually think of those as just situational banks. So you're increasing the number of situations your body is used to responding to. Um, because if you've ever ridden a mountain bike down a steep trail, you might be cruising along and your front wheel hits a rock in a certain way. You weren't expecting, um, and your body has to respond to help you avoid crashing. And those little moments of imbalance and surprise um, and adaptability, those are things that I think you can train really effectively in the gym. Uh, you're often doing very weird looking things and, and just continuing to find ways to challenge yourself. But um, I have had a lot of moments on the bike where I feel like those uh, you know, kind of subconscious reactions that you develop have saved me or, or helped me go a lot faster.
0: It's fascinating. I love some of that reactionary timing that you're doing. And um, I had Gwen Jorgensen on the show who won the 2016 triathlon world champion. And she was having to practice her reactions because the 2016 Olympic Games was a fairly technical bike course. And Gwen came from a running background, a fantastic runner, and she knew the best bikers in the world were going to be going after her. And so she had to practice descending, but she was also out there practicing juggling and just practicing her reaction time. And it was funny because then I had Mark Webber on the show, who's a Formula One driver, and their warm-up before they go out onto the racetrack is quite often just juggling and getting their reaction in and and just making – and it's almost like a a self-centeredness that they get by doing it as well. It's like for them it becomes just so – in, in line with them becoming one with themselves before they hop in, in these in these cars. So to see it in, I, I think there's a lot of similarities almost to driving a a car at 300 kilometers an hour down a, a track and getting ready for positioning and cornering, as there is mountain biking down a really tiny single track, not knowing what's coming around the corner, the bend, or anything. And it's a very reactionary type game that you're playing, and and I, I think that's just fantastic. And, and I guess that leads into my next bit. When we're talking about technical riding in mountain biking, how are you, how do you train for that knowing that if you don't get it right, it could be severe consequences?
1: Yeah, I mean, the courses have definitely gotten more technical and, and there is risk um, for sure. And uh, we have a little bit of that in the gym as well. But, you know, again, for me, I, I think it is similar to driving a race car, maybe with a little bit less risk than that. Um, but just preparing yourself to be able to rise to the occasion and adapt to all of these, um, different challenges. And I think that happens for me also out on the trail, um, being really intentional about, you know, what I can focus on and practice and get better at. (laughs)
0: Less risk. I'm kind of laughing because, again, like I mentioned, Mark Weber basically said he's crashed cars at 300 kilometers an hour, 100, 200 miles an hour, whatever it is, and um, flipped through the air and everything else and walked away from a Formula One car with a sprained ankle. But he rides a mountain bike a lot. And one of the crashes that he had on mountain bike he he broke his leg in a couple of places and then the only times he's actually hurt himself in his entire career was on a mountain bike even though he had some of the most dramatic car crashes that you've ever ever seen actually when you finish this type in Mark Weber crashes and it's just fantastic to watch so when you say there's less risk in mountain biking I don't know that we're all going to agree with that and it's it's just fantastic to see what you are able to do because I don't think the TV does it justice of actually what you're riding up and down, (laughs) you know, we kind of like, Oh yeah, we could probably do that. I mean, is it equivalent to like black diamond type stuff for those people that are out riding their mountain bikes?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think part of what makes cross country mountain biking so difficult is that you're doing it, uh, you know, above threshold. Um, Mm. So descending something might not be very difficult, but once you go up a hill as fast as you can against the best women in the world, Uh, All of a sudden, it becomes hard to see as straight and to ride as straight. (laughs) So, For me, it is also about making sure that you're prepared to do these things under load and to do them well again and again and again. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that just comes from practice. And, you know, I think, um, you know, you were talking about risk. And that, for me, a lot of times maps with thinking about fear as well. And I think the best way to combat that and to lower your risk and to combat that fear is to build the skills that you need to confidently do something. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me that has started in the gym, it has been, you know, going to skills camps and when the courses are technical and there might be a drop on it, not just having that be my first time going off a drop, uh, making sure that I, you know, do a curb and then a two foot drop and then a three foot drop. And then I can confidently have the skills to do it. Um, it's not just about overcoming the fear and taking the risk it's about mitigating it by building the necessary skill set to do it successfully
0: mm, really well said i like that and and i guess that leads into where i want to just talk about your mental strategies which we've touched on throughout the, this chat um and you've said you've worked you do work with a sports psychologist with, with some of these what are some of the the things that you're doing to help prepare yourself for these events that require big decisions under duress like you said and are you visualizing these events? Are you using word affirmations as you're going through? How how are you getting yourself ready?
1: I would say a little of everything. Um, we work. I work with my sports psychologist and meet with her in the weeks leading into races, and we talk about goal setting, visualization. Um, you know, again, affirmations. I, I think it's about being able to put yourself in the right mindset to not ensure, but raise the odds that you'll have optimal performance. Um, and for me, that happens when I'm really focused on the moment and have a few positive affirmations and a few really specific goals. So my thoughts in a race might toggle between, um, you know, my ideal power on a certain climb or my ideal line through a rock garden, um, back and forth to, you know, a mantra or something that we have been thinking about for the race. So, um, I think it's just having those tools in your toolkit to come back to and to use whichever one serves you in the moment. Mm.
0: And and your overall general health then, I mean, so we've talked about your training, we've talked about your great team, we've talked about, you know, your mental strategies. Do you, uh, your general health, are you able to sort of monitor that? Are you doing that through nutrition? Are you doing a lot of blood work? Do you do a lot of testing? You say you like all the data, are you doing that as well?
1: Love data. Um, yeah, we, we do a lot of that. So I work with a nutritionist and I've worked with the same nutritionist for about five years and, uh, he doesn't work with any other mountain bikers. So that's kind of an interesting partnership where we're allowed to test things and, and really innovate in a way that, um, you know, is unique to my physiology and to my race goals. Uh, and yeah, I think a, a lot of it is about optimal performance.
0: Okay. So are you doing, are you not following any kind of specific nutritional plan? Like, a uh, you know, not, you know, do you focus on protein or, you know, veganism or any of that, or are you just sort of a, a well-rounded approach to nutrition?
1: I think for me, um, a lot of it is about, you know, doing what works for me. And I would say there is no like specific thing that I, um, follow that's like a fad diet i take little parts of each thing um that work for me and and we test things really scientifically and are really critical about what the research says and and what works for me um in terms of fueling my own self my unique physiology my unique goals and throughout the season that also changes so the unique time of year that we're in
0: and i guess as you were, we're sort of getting ready for tokyo olympics now in 2021 um does that race suit you and, and is the nutrition that you're practicing and the, the hydration, are you able to train in an environment that's specific to what Tokyo is going to be like?
1: Yeah, we, we, uh, we definitely have some tricks up our sleeve for the Tokyo <laughs> you know, race. But, uh, yeah, I think we'll have even more given the extra year to test and really dial things in.
0: Mm, I, I think just come and spend a few weeks in South Florida here in the summer and I think you're, you're pretty much going to have it dialed in for for how, how tough Tokyo is going to be. So, well, this has been absolutely wonderful, Kate. I don't want to take any more of your time. I know you've got a big ride coming with your dad this afternoon. It's just been, you are just so mature. You've got so much knowledge to share and um, you're obviously very comfortable you know doing these kind of things so i really really appreciate it i am a fan so I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and i wish you all the very best i really hope that um september comes about the uci mountain bike will you know world cup comes so you get some racing this year because i i know how much you you love to race um so for people that want to follow you and is it kate courtney um basically on all platforms or, or what what's your what are your handles
1: first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It was, uh, really a pleasure to talk to you and it's always unique and special opportunity to talk to fellow athletes. Um, I think you have an interesting inside look at, at what it takes to do these races and navigate, um, the athletic world. So thank you, um, for following me. It's Kate plus fate on Instagram. Um, and that's probably the best platform, but okay. it's Kate plus com is my website and uh, and yeah I'm hoping we'll get to race and if so that I'll be able to wave to you from the start line on Red Bull TV
0: Oh, that'll make me feel so special you have no idea I'll be like that waves for me <laughs> so I'll put for everybody listening I'll put those uh, I'll put those in the show notes those links um, Kate also has some amazing videos that have come out that is called Rising, I think it's called, the series that you have on your website. I did have a quick look before we we got on, just doing amazing stuff on there, and I hope you keep those coming. Um, They're just a fantastic insight into what you're doing. Um, And again, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, Go to BennettEndurance.com, and and you can watch with your app, listen on your app of choice. Um, Kate, stay on the line. I really appreciate it. This has been fantastic.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much.